All right, here we go. It's the Hot Stove Society Radio Show on Cairo Radio. Thank you for joining us here today. We're here every Saturday oh, and Sunday. They're, they're top notch. They are top notch. Small but mighty. Yay! Uh, they are top notch. Uh, I'm Tom Douglas, and I'm the owner of a few joints here around Seattle, including Seatown in the north end of the Pike Place Market area, Dahlia Bakery across the street, Sirius Pie, Lola downstairs, and of course, uh, Carlisle Room. If you're heading to a show at the Paramount, you got to stop into the Carlisle Room. And I'm joined uh, at the altar, the radio, the Hot Stove Society altar. By your priest friend. <laughs> <laughs> no, by Thierry Rotero, the chef in a hat. Yay. Here every day you, we do the show, and today is a Wednesday, a Tuesday, Tuesday, right? I can't even remember what day it is. Thanks for the audience to come in on a Tuesday instead yeah. of Friday. That's and very Thanks beautiful. to our YouTubers who are tuning in also. Please yeah. subscribe to our YouTube channel. Uh, Pam, what is that channel again? Tom Douglas and Company. Click on yes, Host of right. Society. Uh, okay, so we have a big show. Uh, we're here at the Hotel Andre 4th and Virginia in downtown Seattle. It's a beautiful hotel. Sometime, uh, you know, I, my suggestion, this is just a suggestion, is that you have a little staycation, right? You, uh, you come down, you have a little pizza at Serious Pie, you get up in the morning, either head down to Lola for breakfast or walk across the street for a, a delicious whoa, 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 whoa. You uh, Dahlia went way, Bakery. You went way too fast through this. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> you have to stay here. Oh, a bottle of champagne. Okay, jeez. You have to stay here, have a bottle of champagne. Yeah, here we go. There we go. And then uh, go down and uh, have Lola breakfast in the morning or walk across to the Dahlia Bakery. These lucky uh, people here today are going to get a Dahlia Bakery breakfast oh, sandwich. Yeah. So delicious. On our homemade English muffins uh, for breakfast this morning. I'm having the veggie once again. With I'm ham. A, well, with ham, yes. Yeah. But that's all right. I like to get a, a balanced diet. Yeah. You know what? That's what's recommended. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, so uh, we are, uh, have a big show, like we always do. Miss Pamela Hinckley, our producer, has been busy, busy, busy. Uh, peak of the season ramps. We're going to explore these little critters that are growing wild. They're free to you with a little effort. So You just have to go in the woods. You just have to go in the woods. Maybe you need to fight off a bear. <laughs> Although the bears aren't out much right now. It makes yet. it much more interesting then. Yeah. <laughs> Tina Noll, one of our old producers, is going to be here to share her oyster adventure. I'm not really sure what that is, but I'm excited to find out. Yeah. She's always full of uh, vim and vigor. Uh, we discuss uh, Emil's... Uh, how do you say his last name? Emil Nino. Nino. I've known him for... 40 years, yes, and likewise. I still did not know how to pronounce his last name. Emil Nino, who was kind enough to write us a letter and mention the fact that uh, maybe we could talk about wine and, and alcohol and try to educate our listeners about or try to guide them, you know, in that kind of uh, realm. So that, that's a very interesting... Um, I mean, we used well, to we do used that. we used to do that yeah. quite often. Pamela's husband, Michael, uh, who yeah. has a Pike and Western wine shop down there in the Pike Place Market used to come on uh, weekly in the beginning of our yeah. show, even when we were doing it live over at the studio. So yeah. Emil uh, used to have uh, a restaurant called La Tastevan, which was Rick. probably my first real in-depth French cooking experience. Uh, not, not that I worked there, but I ate there. I, loved, right, I right. loved eating there. And beautiful wine list, too. Yeah. And so he was listening to our bit on Loire Valley Wines last week and said, why don't we have this more often? Correct. So thank you, Emil, for your suggestion and... Uh, we, uh, it is firmly planted in Pamela's ears. Gutsy black beans are adaptable companions to so many dishes. I've never been a bean person, but I'm starting. It's, it's coming on. Oh, I, I love black beans. I'm starting to. Even canned beans I don't mind as much. Well, I'm talking about canned beans right now. Oh. Uh, we're going to talk about well, how to. About uh, oh, you are? Oh. Mm -hmm. 
We're going to talk about how to celebrate your mom with a tea party. Uh, Pamela, in her in her side life, is a crafts person, and she's going to give us a little idea of how to uh, make Doll a, it up. a tea party uh, that would make Alice in Wonderland jealous. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm. indeed. Uh, Chef Annie, or better known as Edna, uh, is going to be here about planning a French-Vietnamese dinner, uh, a mashup dinner. You know, uh, Vietnam was colonized... Uh, Many years ago, by your country, correct. Uh, as long as, uh, as well as with other areas of the uh, region, and uh, it's interesting what kind of things are left over. And and when I did my trip to Vietnam, that was my people were like, "So why Vietnam?" And I said, well, "I just want to go see if they still are influenced by the French, uh-huh. or if they've reprocessed with the new generation, if they reprocess their, uh, you know, their culture and their yeah. cooking." And it was very interesting because I went from Hanoi all the way down to. Saigon, and yeah, very interesting to realize that, yeah, yeah, they do have some traces of the French culture, but they're definitely, definitely the new um, generation is definitely pushing towards their culture again. Okay. So it's very nice. I went to a Vietnamese restaurant for lunch yesterday, which is my taste of the week, uh, so I'll get to that in a second. But anyway, I just want to finish up. The show is going to end with... The Rub with Love Food for Thought Tasty Trivia. So, Which you, you need to get a revenge on the uh, skunking you get Damn, last week. Damn, I got <laughs> trashed last week. And yeah, I think Miss Hinkley might have had something to do with it. <laughs> Back to my taste of the week. I went to a little restaurant that I've been waiting for to reopen for indoor dining. Uh, up there at 104th and Holman Road. Or right where Holman Road and Greenwood intersect. Uh, and it's called Bon Town. B-A-H-N Town. T-O-W-N. Bon Town. And yesterday was their first day back indoor dining uh, after a long hiatus, over two years. And I had the beef stew, which was done in kind of a a gravy for sure. I'm not sure. I think it was more thickened by cornstarch than flour. Maybe it had rice flour as a thickener. I'm not sure. But really a nice, dark, uh, rich, star anise-scented gravy. And they still brought out, like you would with a bowl of pho, some Thai basil and some lemon, not lime, I squeezed it in, put the basil in, it had some carrots in it, this nice broth. And to our point about the French influence, it was served with a huge baguette, uh, super <laughs> light, super light like they make the sandwiches Yeah, wrong. like they make the bun. And I just dipped away and I had my beef stew and it was lovely. So that's and a little bit, was there red wine in the sauce? Uh, no, I don't think no? so. No, there was no, just the lemon was the acid in the right, sauce, right. it felt like to me. But, you know, sometimes we like to thicken pho broth. Yeah. Uh, and so, but it was richer than that. So it was delicious. I would suggest it anytime. And it'd be a great to-go food. I'm sure it would travel beautifully. Right, right, right. Nice. Uh, for me, it's uh, my trip to Don Angel's last Friday to get my ham. Uh, that's the first time I did that, actually. But I did that upon your suggestion. Uh-huh. It reminded me. I'm like, God, I've been wanting to do this for years. And Kathy was like, oh, yeah, I love a ham. That would be so cool. We haven't had one in a long time. So I did a 13-pounder. <laughs> For the two of you. Well, because there was another story, but it's another story. But anyway, 13-pounder in the oven, 300 degrees, two hours with a bunch of – I did some dry rub. So I took some of the uh, Tokyo rub, and I did a mixture of that and Rasel Anout. And that was a beautiful fragrance, and I had some fresh anise seeds from my garden from last year. Crushed that and put that into it. Uh, fennel seed, not any seed. Uh-huh. And then uh, put that all around the, uh, the ham and put that in the, in the oven two hours. And then after two hours, I had a pomegranate caramel that I had left oh. from the winter. And I oh, put that, that all good. over the ham. Yeah. And, uh, 
at 3.50 and then caramelize that. Yeah. Oh, baby. That was... There is, there is still some in the fridge and it's fabulous. We would wow. have been willing to taste some of that. Thanks for bringing it in and sharing, Chef. No, no problem, no problem. Just stick okay, around. Okay, up next, uh, we're going to jump right into our peak of the season ramps. A lot of people don't even know what they are, but we're going to tell you about them when you come back and listen to us at the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. And we're back in the hot stove kitchen on Cairo. It's Tom Douglas Yay! yakking at you here. Hopefully you're in your garden at this beautiful spring. And That's right. It's uh, planting time. You know, I, we just had frost maybe one week ago, but I think we're done with that. Well, I am. <laughs> you know, at our farm in, in Prosser, uh, May 8th or Mother's Day is about the last extended kind of frost date. You're not really over there. We don't really plant until after May 8th. Uh, we've never had frost after that date. Although we had snow twice last week. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so, uh, Chef, oui? you look good today. Thank you. I feel good. Uh, you have a little plate of deliciousness in front of you that our producer yeah. made up earlier, as, as do our audience members. Um, that plate, uh, Pamela, do you want to tell us what's on the plate? Because it's more than just ramps. It's a sheep milk feta and a high-quality extra virgin olive oil, like many foods, uh, each has a particular affinity with another. And as I kept reading about ramps, the call-out was feta. Uh, oh, really? The, I think there's something about the lemony chalkiness of it that is a beautiful complement to the oniony, garlicky ramp. And then there's something sprinkled on top. Is that just a grind of black pepper? Yep, black pepper and some Murray River Salt. It's fabulous. Oh, okay. I would love love this on a on a slice of toasted grain bread. Mm -hmm. That would be fabulous on top of. Tell us about ramps, chef. Tell our listeners uh, about them, where you find them, how to how to. uh, Where do you find them? I don't know. I've never actually picked wild ramps. You've never seen them in the woods? No, I've seen them. Well, I mean, I've seen them in movies. I've seen them in, Uh but never, (coughs) never in real life. Okay. Where did you see them? Uh, I see them all over the place. Um, last time I was up there, Snoqualmie Pass, I'm going to say. I was walking along that. Um, that would make sense because it's usually a higher elevation. Uh-huh. It's not a sea level uh, kind of thing. Uh, the, the ramps are uh, a wild licks. And basically they taste like if you take a, a young lick out of your garden or out of the market and you chew on it, it's the same thing with a little bit more perkiness to it. So there's a little bit more bitey to it. It's very, very delicious. Mm-hmm. It also is, to me, halfway leek, halfway garlic. It is a very pungent vegetable. Very pungent. Mm-hmm. Like you keep that in your fridge and everything else will, you better cover it up because otherwise everything else will smell like garlic. The um, stem is a little bit more pungent than the leaf. Correct. And uh, the leaf is what you put in with the feta. Kind of mix that. Yeah, in. and the leaf is more garlicky than the stem, I think, in terms of... If you were blindfolded, I think you would think that the leaf is more garlicky mm-hmm. and the stem a little bit more leeks, like uh, onion, like right. Um, great vegetable too. Um, they're usually very small stems, so it looks like a, a mini leek, basically. And the leaf are very wide, like a spinach almost. Uh-huh. So I usually cook them differently uh, in terms of like when I did this for the dinner the other night, I cooked the green separately from the from the stem. I cut them in half. And cook the greens on the leaf because the leaf cooks very fast. Yeah, they're very tender. It's like a and, basil leaf almost. Correct. Yeah. And they cook very fast. So 
the way I did it for Friday night, I put them in a melted white foamy butter. I put all my uh, white lick in there, my white ramp, and then barely cooked them very slowly for about two, three minutes, and that's it. Crack pepper on top, and that's it. You just leave it alone, and it will finish to cook in that pan to be tender enough to be able to be uh, used as a garnish for what I was doing. Right, and when, when you say they're a wild leek, you have to remember that they are a, almost like a sprout. You right. know, they're not really a leek. People are so used to the big inch-wide leeks, right, that you have to cut down and right. then spread open to get the dirt out and stuff like this. These are more like uh, a small green onion. Right, exactly. Uh, uh, if, as far as the size goes. And so they don't take long to cook at all. No, and no, no. And if you no. mince them or, or chiffonade the leaves, you don't have to cook them. Correct. At all. Correct. Yeah. And they also do really well raw, sliced in salads. I mean, I, I love using ramp as a, an answer of flavor. Like the, you know, we always talk about putting acids like lemon uh-huh. or whatever. Le, uh, Ramps does the same thing. Like if you're sauteing some mushroom, just regular button mushroom, you saute them in brown butter. And at the end, you throw in fresh chopped ramps. Mm-hmm. You have this beautiful distinction of accentuating the flavor in there. It's and really- so to, to be clear, at that point... You're not cooking them anymore. No. You're tossing the raw ramps Correct. in with the hot-cooked mushrooms, and that exactly. residual heat is what's cooking your ramp. Right. Yeah. And now, it will give that flavor. It will really give that flavor away to counter the mushroom, and it's a beautiful match. Right. I've had ramps dozens of ways. Almost always you see them this time of year on a piece of fish. Right. Uh, you know, because they're so mild and pretty, and they look great. They feel like spring. It's just it's a perfect kind of spring thing but i will tell you pamela i've never had them better than i than with that sheep's milk feta <laughs> I know it, it's just, yeah 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 no it's <laughs> funny because it really whatever your research was that you said that uh, this came up all the time there's good reason part of it's the delicious olive oil you used yeah. a really yeah. good olive oil and people ask us all the time especially in class it's like when do i use the 30 or 40 dollar bottle of olive oil compared to the no. 10 dollar bottle now exactly good point chef with this uh, sheep's milk feta, with the little chiffonade of the ramps, um, a little black pepper, a little salt. This is the way to really get a sense of what a ramp can be. Right. And yeah. it's really, really delicious. I mean, it's, there's nothing wrong with any of this. It's kind of like chives on steroids. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's what Good it is. Think, think about a bunch of chopped chives on top of your feta, but on steroids, like super, super pungent. That's what the leak. That's what the wild leak would be like. Yeah, the ramps. I'm not sure I would add the second super to the pungent. Okay, just you know, I mean, just just to be clear with our listeners, it's like it's not going to like you know how when you eat straight garlic, it blows your mouth off. Yeah, I right? can't. It's not like I that can't eat at raw all. Garlic. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not that guy. Yeah, so it's just it's not. It yeah. is really a beautiful marriage of a leek and a garlic. Correct. Chive almost. Correct. Yeah, I think it's a very elegant vegetable. I mean, I I, I really really like it. And I look forward to it in spring when it comes around. So, so this time of year for me, the ultimate spring is morels, oh, yeah. fresh peas, mm. the English peas, and chopped wild ramps, oh. all sautéed together, together in, in butter. Or if you want to get frisky, you can put a little buttered pasta with it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Don't let it, let, it, let it live on its own, right? Really taste them for what they are. You know what it does well, too, in mashed potato? If you do a good... Like half butter, half potato, kind of mashed potato, uh-huh. really rich. And then you put a bunch of fresh ramps, chives, uh, chopped in there. So it basically cooks and melts as it, as mm-hmm. it uh, because the mashed potato is hot. 
That's a that's a decent mashed potato as well. If you were steaming a piece of halibut right now or a piece of black cod and with ramps, uh, you know, oftentimes you see them pickled because people save them during the season. They you know get a right. bunch and then they right. pickle them or they'll do something with it. How would you make a piece of steamed fish with ramps? Would you so, put the ramps in when you steam the fish or would you do it at the end? So I would put the green on top of the fish and the white on the bottom of the fish. I would put butter in the pan, melt the butter, put the ramps on the bottom, the white ramp on the bottom, and then put the green leaves on top of the fish, and I would steam it that way. That would be so pretty. It would be pretty, but it would also be nice because the, the leaf would just melt right into the fish, so the flavor goes straight in. Mm-hmm. And then the ramps on the bottom would be, when you're eating your fish, you would get the bottom part of the uh, ramps, and that yeah. would be delicious with your fish. I would probably pre-slice those maybe one inch long so that you're not trying to cut them with a knife. Right. Sometimes they can be a little bit tough. Yeah, like a lick. They yeah. kind of like, it's not tough. It's more like it's springy. You stringy, know, stringy, yeah, I yeah. think that's a better description. All right, we're going to talk oysters with somebody who knows them oh so well. Tina Knoll is here. Yay, and, uh, Tina. <laughs> and uh, I will say it's a little bit of a surprise that you're uh, in on the oyster train, so uh, I'm going to find out a little bit about that, and then we'll listen in to her story. On Cairo Radio, it's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Welcome back to the Hot Stove Society Show. We enjoy this couple hours every week so much. Uh, we're thankful to be here, and one of the uh, or one of the reasons why we are still here twenty plus years later is that Tina Knoll, uh, mm-hmm. who got us uh, on the air way back when, live when I was uh, subbing for Dave uh, Ross, Dave Ross, Cairo Radio. Yeah. yeah, they actually offered me a show after. Subbing for Dave Ross. That was for three twenty-two hours. years ago. How old were you? Twelve. <laughs> yes, I was twelve. He's maybe thirteen. Anyway, yeah. <laughs> Tina has uh, been on and off with us over the last couple of years after she left the show, and mm-hmm. uh, mostly when you have something to say about <laughs> food somewhere in the Northwest. The perk of being uh, involved in the Seattle Kitchen or Hot Stove Radio Show um, is that I get invited to fun things. Still, uh-huh. so I was invited to spend the night over at Alderbrook on the Hood Canal, and it's newly renovated. It is gorgeous. When you walk in, there's two little cats sitting by the fireplace, and just lovely. And there's a new restaurant, um, their Hook and Fork, and I got to eat oysters in every way. And you know, I'm, I was vegan for a very long time. Oh, you're not anymore? <laughs> I mean, I sort of cheat for two things. Okay. And one is serious pie. This is Sausage a true story. Pizza, right? It's just the cheese pizza, serious oh, pie. Geez. And the other one is for oysters. And I'm a sucker for a delicious oyster. And oh. they have them in every variety. Oh, and they're growing them right there, farming them right there in, um, in Alderbrook in the Hood Canal. Now, did you get to go pick some off the beach, or did you see how they were growing them? I, I got to see how they were growing them. We went right to the beach, and uh, the executive chef, Sarah Harvey, told me all about how they are farming them, how they're preparing them, and how great they are for our environment. I have to say, right now is the time to eat oysters. Yes, indeed. Yes. Yes, yes indeed. While it's still cool. Yep. Here is executive chef at Alderbrook, Sarah Harvey, and I chatting about oysters right there on the beach. Yeah, so these are um, these are the Alderbrook oyster beds, and after last summer, we're doing a little bit of recovery work. The Southern Hood Canal, in particular, got hit really hard with the heat wave, but our farming company that we work with, S and B Shellfish, has been doing a great job of reseeding the beach. So we do beach harvest oysters down here, which some people call natural harvest. It's the way oysters grow normally. Um, 
And these days lately, you'll see a lot of tumbled oysters on menus around town. They're pretty popular in restaurants, kushis, shigokus, blue pools. But there's something real special about a natural oyster. I'm seeing oyster shells everywhere on the beach that we're standing in right now. Yes, oysters love to grow on their own oyster shell. So one of the best ways to increase a natural harvest on a beach is to put oyster shell back on the beach. The Billion Oyster Project is a great example of this happening in the New York estuary. They've been working since the 70s to rebuild natural oyster reefs with the hope that as we increase the number of filter feeders in the bay, we will find um, safer safer waters for human consumption after everything we've done in the last 100 years, which the, the anticipation is that by 2050 we'll be able to fish for human consumption again out of New York Bay, which is the world's largest oyster estuary. Which is just amazing after after the Industrial Revolution. So yeah. oysters are cool. They each filter 55 gallons of water a day. So when you think about the the millions of oysters on a beach multiplied by 55, that's that's why we talk about oysters as being stewards of the environment, not just tideland critters. They are one of the most amazing and beneficial species that we have in the intertidal zone, and they're the reason that so many other species are able to flourish in the Hood Canal. They clean the water and they provide food to tons of different predators like seals and otters, um, but also other fish. So oysters are cool. They're kind of like flowers that only come out underwater. The shells open up and both of the mantles will come out and start to fan through the water looking for microalgaes and other little particulates that are coming down from the forest. So you are basically growing these oysters here, mm-hmm. right? Is that how you would say it? Yeah, we usually talk about oysters as farming. Um, You know, as opposed to uh, an agricultural product specifically, since they are living. Uh, But we farm oysters, and uh, aquaculture is the blanket term that we use for oysters, clams, any of the the shellfish that we do in the intertidal zone here. Um, Hamahama farms a couple different kinds of clams, actually. They do purple varnish and manila. Purple varnish are an invasive species that just kind of exists here, and manilas are an introduced species that also tend to exist. Our native little neck clam does exist on the canal, but in much smaller numbers. It's not something that people seed beaches with. And so same thing with the Olympias. It's a little bit harder to grow. It's a lot harder to find seed. And some of these introduced species are actually doing the bulk work of shellfish production and shellfish water filtering. So when you farm the oysters here, you're, you pull them all out of the water, and then what happens? So at low tide, which we are approaching right now, we're at about a one-and-a-half-foot tide. At an extreme low, it'll actually go out past, um, kind of up to the dock there, past that, and then it starts to drop down. But So at low tide, and with farming, you always want to go out on the outgoing tide, so the oysters have just come out of the water, and they've just fil- finished filtering. Um, so you go down, and, and it's oyster farming is kind of hard work. You get down on your, your hands and knees, or and you just kind of walk around looking for... These perfect little, these perfect little shuckers. So that's about the size we would look for. About the size of a two, woman's yeah, hand. Two to, yeah, two to three inches, palm size. Um, that's a great extra small oyster. And if you flip it over, you can actually see all these little barnacles and things growing on the back side of it. Oysters, when they spawn, they are broadcast spawners, kind of like trees. So in the summer, male and female oysters will both um, spawn into the water. Those little zygotes are gonna pair up and then fall down and they like to land on things like oyster shell clam shell but they'll grow on anything they'll grow on a hammer on a sneaker on a rock um a lot of times when you get beach oysters or if you're out picking oysters yourself you'll find rocks and things attached to them and that's just everything needs somewhere to sit when they start 
And could anybody farm oysters? Like if you're walking down a beach or you're looking for something specific, is it safe to farm oysters kind of anywhere? Or is there licensing? There's a, there's a ton of licensing involved, actually. Um, there's a ton of licensing you can't involved. You just go out yourself and be like, you know what I'm going to do today? No, there's uh, There are public beaches that you can harvest on. Some of them year-round. Most of them, um, May to September, we shut them down. Department of Health does just due to safety concerns as the water temperatures rise up. But there's lots of public beaches that are managed by Fish and Wildlife um, where you can go and you can harvest oysters. There's a daily shellfish license. And ethically, you're supposed to shuck the oysters on the beach and leave the shell to help promote that natural growth. Some folks don't do that. Uh, hopefully that's a very small amount of people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the idea is that you take the clams, you cook them on the beach, and you leave the shells, or you shuck the oyster meat out and leave the shell for the natural harvest. Um, oyster farmers all work together, yeah. It's a, it's a real collaborative industry. We are all excited about each other's success because it means that our environment is succeeding and it means that our industry is succeeding. Not anybody can provide enough oysters for the entire world. And so if we don't have a community of people advocating for each other and advocating for safety in the water, safety for the farmers, um, safety for delivery drivers even, things like that, you know, we're, we're all just fighting uphill. So as a community, we're, we're much stronger. So, um, okay, so you pull these guys, you pull these oysters out of the sand, yeah. and then what happens? Yeah, so we pull oysters off the beach, um, and we put them in bags, and then usually we'll leave them on the beach for at least another full tide to let them flush out and to let the water kind of rinse some of the mud and the barnacles off. When you talk about purging clams, all that means is you're putting clean water through the clams, so any sand or any little particulates in their stomach, when you get that grittiness, you're trying to flush that out. And now you have oysters, you're preparing oysters here at Hook and Fork, over here in Alderbrook, all kinds of different ways. So I'm kind of a purist. I really like them just raw and slurpy. Um, but what else are you guys doing over here? Totally. We're doing oysters four ways currently. So we have raw oysters. We are doing a char-grilled oyster with a butter. We're doing a topped oyster called Market Feller style with bacon, caramelized onion, roasted garlic, and cheese. And then we're also doing fried oysters. I have to tell you, I um, gave up cheese and dairy for a little while till yesterday when I occasionally I'll have Tom Douglas's serious pie because it's my favorite thing in the world but yesterday I had that market feller and they did they did take the bacon off for me and it was to die it was really again I say I was a purist about oysters but that one I, I ate four I ate all four that's of those amazing. <laughs> that's amazing they're huge they are, yeah. We like to use the bigger size oyster for grilling, maybe like a four-inch shell. So that way, by the time you cook it, you still have a nice piece of meat inside. Mm-hmm. The size that we, we harvest for raw are delightful for raw oysters, but by the time you cook them, you're looking at a little tiny, little tiny guy. What would you say to somebody who's never had an oyster before and the whole idea kind of freaks them out? If you like seafood, an oyster is probably the best taste that you'll ever have out of the ocean. I always say it's like biting the ocean. I love, love, love oysters. And even when I went vegan for a few years, oysters were my weakness. I think because of that freshness, that delicious flavor. Now it's a little, it's nice even to know that there's an environmental component here, that there's some sort of intentional sustainability around what you guys are doing. Well, I I think that's a piece too, that when people think of farmed fish, they've heard so many bad things, Atlantic salmon, you know, fish pens breaking open, but farming oysters actually creates a better environment. We're not adding any water. We're not adding any feed. And all we're doing is filtering and creating a stronger ecosystem for other species. So I'm excited to eat oysters for lunch. Fantastic. Good. Yeah, this is the best season to eat them too, because they're getting nice and big and sweet. They haven't hit warm summer's waters yet. 
Thank you so much, Chef Sarah Harvey, for showing me around Alderbrook Resort and Spa. I had such a great visit there. I swam in the saltwater pool overlooking the bay. In the morning, I took my coffee out and walked down the dock and sat and just gazed at the water in the mountains. And on my last day there, I sat on the terrace where Hook and Fork took over, had six of the most delicious oysters and a glass of bubbly before I left. I highly recommend checking out Alderbrook Resort and Spa. Just go to alderbrookresort.com for more information. You're listening to Hot Stove Radio here on Cairo 97.3 FM. Chef Terry, do you love black beans? Yes, do I love do. love baby beans? Do you I love, love black beans? beans. Do you I, love flagelé? You know, when I started Rovers, one of the dish on the menu was black bean with chicken and goat cheese sauce. Ah. And that was a big hit with a few of the regular at the time. Really? They were very sad when I took it off the menu. <laughs> this I is was top- like... Come on, guys. We need to move on. This is Tom and Terry in the Hot Stove Kitchen, and we're going to talk this whole segment about beans... And, uh, Chef, I want you to convince me. I'm, I'm kind of halfway there now. I'm, I'm starting to get beans. You know what got me over the hump? No. On beans? I, we made a bean dish. I did a like a confit bean with garlic and lots of salt for the Cantina Lenya's menu when it mm. first opened. And I cooked them in duck fat until they got dehydrated and crispy. That is... <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what? Basically, could have been anything in Negating the nutritional value of the bean. That is not true. Fat. Anyway. Or enhancing. 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 Yes, yeah. sorry. Uh, anyway, I, I started, well, these are pretty good. And so then I, I, a few times I had them in Mexican restaurants, like the refried beans. That, that took me a bit, but I'm kind of getting into those. And I've kind of slowly... Jackie has been growing lots of beans you know, she and my mother-in-law sit in front of the TV and shell those dry beans uh, in the fall, so they're all ready to go. Um, That's the yeah, picture I have of growing up in, on the farm. Yeah, let's, I want to hear about in, your in flagellate. In, in the fall, you just start bringing all those beans inside, and you're sitting by literally late fall by the fireplace, and you're taking all those beans out of the pod, mm-hmm. and you're putting them away in glass jar, you know, and putting them on the shelf. And every time you want some beans, you just soak them overnight, and... Next day, you cook those beans slowly with an onion, clove, bay leaf, thyme, and a big fat piece of butter and some water. And then cook the beans very slowly until they fall off. The, the skin just stops falling off because that's how we used to have beans. When I was a kid, they cooked everything to the end. To the end. And um, to this day, I recommend to anybody, do not undercook beans. It's a bad idea for your stomach. Yeah. It's a terrible thing for your guts. My mother-in-law used to take a can of green beans and cook them for five hours. <laughs> <laughs> That's more than just death. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But uh, so, so those flagellate, you say put a big thing of butter in there, but uh, I always uh, think about pork, uh, 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 what's, the, what's the word, a shank. Like yeah, the, yeah, the yeah, the yeah, pork shank pork in there. shank or something of that nature. So we, had, we, had a, we made our own ham in, on the farm because we killed our own pig. Mm-hmm. And so we always had the, we kept the skin and the, basically the, the skin and the fat that was below the skin of the leg. That's what would go in the beans. You'd put that in the bean, that flavor, you know, talking about smoked bacon or whatever. So how did you preserve that fat in order to have it for when you cook the beans? Or you just you- put, put it in the fridge. You just put it in the fridge. Put it in the fridge. And then, of course, within a week, you'd just be doing some beans because that was the reason you kept the skin. You know, you slice the ham, 
you, you take the skin off, you slice the ham, you eat the ham, and the ham was not, it was a raw ham where you pan fry the ham. Uh-huh. And it was really delicious. It was that, oh. And we're talking about like the picnic cut, right, of the ham? It couldn't have been too big a pig or else that oh, would no, have no, been No, no, we're huge. talking about straight across the leg with yeah. the bone on it. Yeah. Straight across it. And uh, it was really, really delicious. I mean, that was a sauteed ham and then the, the skin and the fat put in the beans to cook. Mm-hmm. The two together on a big toasted of big grilled piece of bread with a more butter. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. So it's like a diet. It's like going on a diet. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a French diet. Yeah, exactly. It's actually a, a countryside diet. Uh-huh. I mean, when you work all day, you know, it, diet is, is a word that I don't really like to use because it's, it makes people think that you have to not eat something. It's like just balance your food. You know, if you eat. A lot of beans and butter today. Just eat more vegetable tomorrow. I mean, you know, it's, there is no secret. You cannot eat butter every day of your life and be okay. It's not going to work. So you need to balance things out, you know. And, and when you eat butter, if you're going to eat more one day, just eat less the, the next few days. You know, it's like... But let's, let's go back to the beans. Yeah, let's go back to the beans. It's much more interesting. Uh, so no, I, I like, getting a I tirade. Like, in my house, Kathy makes a soup with canned black bean. Because I'm always like, you want me to buy blank beans? No, no, we use the canned one. And they actually are really delicious. Um, do, flavor-wise, they're really good. I'm used to it, I guess. But more importantly, she makes a, a cut between a, a Mexican soup and an Italian soup, I guess. It's black bean. She used canned tomato with spice in it, like a little chili in it. And she used uh, fresh salsa. Then she buys. Mm-hmm. And so it's three cans. This is in, an awakening. It, it's a rover, road to row house. I know. Yes. This is very, very different. But you know, when she makes it, I'm like, hey, I love this soup. It's mm-hmm. so delicious. Mm-hmm. But the bottom line is it's black beans, um, tomato, a little heat, and salsa. And then you put the whole thing together. And she adds carrots and celery because just for good measure. And then we serve that uh, with um, tortilla chips. Uh, corn tortilla chips mm-hmm. delicious when I opened uh, uh, as the chef I was the chef and general manager opening Cafe Sport uh-huh. many moons ago back in the early 80s uh, we had black bean soup as a fixture on oh. our menu and we uh, made it with the ham hock and the beans and sure. just made a beautiful soup and then garnished it with uh, tomatillo salsa but we made all throughout the day fresh corn pones you know what a corn pone is? No. corn pone is like corn bread but it's cooked in the shape of an ear of corn. And so we had all these large <laughs> corn pone pans. Oh, I have that cast iron that pan, are cast, six of them. Yeah, that yeah. are cast iron, yeah. And you just pour your uh, in, into bacon fat yeah. or, or duck fat, any sort of fat you layer into your corn pone pan, then put your fresh batter in. And it's like making madeleines in right. a funny way. Right? Exactly. You just make them throughout the day. They're fresh and hot all the time. And that was what we served our black bean soup with. Fresh cornbread. Ooh, that's another item that's delicious with black beans. Mm-hmm. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. But black bean in, in uh, salads too. You know, cooked black beans, fresh black beans. I struggle with that. You do? I do. Corn salad with black beans. Spectacular. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I mean, struggle with that. Just crunchy it's, celery. To me, it's and almost like they just taste like the canned black bean. You know, then. we were tasting feathers and ramps earlier. Yeah. I was talking about that. I'm like, you know what? Push that into the next segment. And I'd add some cooked black beans to this and make it into a salad. That would be, that would be really delicious. Mm-hmm. Maybe some grilled sardines on top. What about classic Americana uh, beans for barbecue, Do you, the baked beans? Do you ever go down that route or is it too sweet for you? I, yeah, I don't do sugar in my beans. Yeah. 
I don't add sugar. You know, I, 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 struggle, I struggle with that because I do try to take all the sugar out of... <laughs> my favorite is when people say, I don't put sugar in my beans, but then they put a bottle of ketchup in there. It's like, hmm, <laughs> let's see. Let's look at the ingredient list on that <laughs> bottle of ketchup. You, you meant to put fresh tomatoes is what you yeah. meant to do. <laughs> no, I mean, I don't, sugar. I, don't, I don't do that very well. Mm -hmm. I'm not a fan of that. I've had it many times in the South, and I, I like beans so much. And to me, my memory of beans is that clay pot in the fields with the goats rolling over it. And then the, in the ashes, you With have that With the what? Oh, the goat on the spit over it. The goat it. on the spit yeah. in the field, mm -hmm. in a hole with the ashes. And the ashes are made with all the cuts from the vines. Mm -hmm. So giant amount, then you burn first and you have the ashes. And then you put the goat to rotate above that, you know, about three feet from the ground. And then you have a big clay pot, all the white beans, water, bay leaf, butter, thyme, garlic clove. And you put that covered in the ashes and... Five, six hours later, you get this falling off. Like, Succulent. Oh, my God almighty. Now, did you always take your lamb to that fall off the bone? Succulent yeah, 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 too? Yeah. 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 Along the goat, with the, the goat, the lamb, everything. Oh, the goat, that's what I meant. Everything we would cook is always, you know, falling off the bone. Yeah. To the end. So tasty. Oh. Uh, what? We don't have time, but I want to know what you mopped your, your goat with. What? Oh, we mop with the uh, arisa, olive oil, and... Um, uh, lots of fresh chopped herbs. Mm, lovely. Then you just take that and baste it. Lovely. Uh, we're going to talk in the next segment about some wine segments here on the show. Miss Hinckley is a wine maven. Uh, Annie's going to talk about a dinner that she did marrying French colonialism and Indochina foods. And then, of course, uh, we're going to finish the show with our uh, Rub with Love Food for Thought tasty trivia on Cairo. It's the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. It's time for hour number two on the Hot Stove Society show on Cairo. I'm Tom Douglas. And I'm Terry Rotoro, the chef in the hat. Chef, we have a lot to cover this hour. We're going to talk a little bit about the French uh, cuisine. Um, influence on Vietnamese Colonialism culture. kind of influence, yeah. And so Annie's going to come on here. Annie uh, Elmore is our chef here at the Hot Stove Society, and she's... Uh, she was a, a mixture great, of several cultures. From she was a great helper the other day when they did a dinner here. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she was fantastic. You kicked her butt a little. She said she had to take it easy on Saturday. Oh, There was a lot going on. I won't say it, but I was dead. Yeah. I was beat. Yeah. We were caught oh, on, you, we you were were on Thursday for like and Friday. 10 hours. Also, we've got Food for Thought Tasty Trivia coming up at the end of this hour. And uh, let's talk a little bit about, uh, we got a letter from a good pal... Uh, of the show, and also a longtime man that I've known forever, uh, Emil. Emil Nino. Nino. Uh, he used to have champion wine cellars down on First and Denny. Correct. Before that, I knew him as one of the owners of La Tastavan restaurant, mm -hmm. which uh, now is where the Uptown Theater is on Queen Anne. Correct. Uh, it seems like forever ago. It is, is forever ago. Is it where the ago. Uptown Theater is? Yeah. Wait. Yes, it is. is Trust it? me on oh, this. Oh, wow. Well, he had two. They also had where Casper's went. Yeah, Casper's. That's what uh, I was going to say. But before Casper's, I mean, that was La Tastavan. But uh, so before I did that, not know that, they one. moved when they put the Uptown Theater ah, in. Yeah. Okay. That was before your time, Chef. Yes, that was yeah. before I moved to LA, uh, Seattle. But for, for me, between La Tastavan and then going up to Vancouver, B.C. and going to La Crocodile, oh, yeah. uh, those were that the was two classic. kind of French classic experiences as a young chef that I had to draw on. And super enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Uh, but Emil was listening to our segment last week on the Loire Valley wines yep. and wondered why 
that we don't have more wine segments. And so, Pamela, you're a wine maven. What would make, you know, sometimes wine can be intimidating and it's not necessarily the most friendly thing. Are, are we going to get our listeners out to a little wine shop to buy a Sancerre or something like that? I don't know. But what would make a good wine segment, do you suppose? Or maybe our listeners could chime in. Uh, for us to talk about on the show because to sit here and talk about it's uh, got this the scent of grapefruit and blah 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 you know you know some of the classic kind of snobby wine isms that goes on how, how do we get wine to the masses well i think i'll start the wine 101 classes again because i've been focusing just on varietals or pairings uh-huh. but there are so many people that uh need to start at the beginning and learn how to read a wine label, and um, build a vocabulary so that they can communicate with their wine merchant or their server about their preferences. I think one of the barriers is that people are shy about their descriptors and don't have confidence in the words that they use to talk about uh-huh. wine. Um, but, the, you know, that's not a, a rule or a given. It, it's sensory. So... Um, Picking words that help you communicate to people about the characteristics that you adore is critical. And the way that I started, uh, it was before cell phones, uh, was by keeping a notebook with labels. I actually soaked them off and kept them. And that started building my preferences that I could share with people. But the other really critical thing is you have to understand what wine is mm-hmm. and the, what the fruit starts with and what the effect of an alcoholic fermentation is on that grape and what you end up with in the characteristics of the wine. Because if you, if, if you start from the beginning with sweet grape juice and then think about the resulting product uh, you can identify which parts of it you love. Is it the acidity? Is the fruit character flavor of the specific grape? And that, that is why, a major Yeah, step. I get it. But it's also what stops people. Is it feels too intimidating, that whole process. Why can't it be more like beer? Like I like a hoppy, <laughs> I like a hoppy ale or I like a, a, like a craft beer or I like a light beer. Why can't wine start in that way rather than well, have it? Yeah, it's all, okay. all of those things. Uh, yeah, I think are a I result. think that um, it's important to know. Number one, do you want to learn about wine? Because many people don't care. I, I can tell you, my <laughs> wife loves wine, but she doesn't want to learn about wine. I mean, we can talk about a subject of wine within one minute. She's like, yeah, not interested. Yeah, I mean, she doesn't want to know. That's not a thing. But she loves good white burgundies. I guarantee you if, <laughs> I, say, great if I say I got a bottle of Pouligny Morache, she's like, I want some. She knows what that is. But that's because we've had it many times, right? And so I think that it, we need to take, in order to take the, the whole fuzziness or the hardness of learning about wine, is try wine. Number one, you have to try it. It's just like food. It's not any different. You got to try new food, right? When you try new food, some of it works, some of it doesn't work. But when you do like something... Take a picture of the label. Just go to your wine store and go, hey, I had this wine and I really like it. So what do you have that's similar to this? Not necessarily the same exact thing or maybe some of the exact thing, but what do you have that is similar to that? So now you just expanded from what you've tried to another wine and so on and so forth. It's not, not everyone should be an expert on anything 
all the time. Or needs to be, yeah. Needs to be. There is no enjoying things uh, in, in order to enjoy things. Often enough, it's because you're not trying to learn all about it. You're trying to enjoy the thing at the moment. A bottle could be delicious today, and you try it in a year from now and go, Ugh, I'm not very keen on that. That's because your palate has grown. You've changed. You've extended. You've done other things. You've tried other wine. So now that wine you liked a year ago is not becoming boring. It's like, oh, I'm not really like that. I like something else. Same with food. I think uh, I had exactly that experience because when I was a young pup in the wine business, uh, it was during the time of Zinfandel oh, yeah. being so popular, both the red and the pink variety. Right. And it, it's fruit forward and not tannic, and that was my wine of choice. And now you, I wouldn't be I, caught dead drinking I, a Zinfandel because I've... My palate has changed, and I want you more. You wouldn't be caught dead drinking a Zinfandel? Uh-uh. Really? Not unless it was from Ridge. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it got too high in the alcohol content for and me. And it got high in alcohol. But I still love a good Zinfandel, so that's funny how it all changes. And, and your, your story's a good one, because as you concentrate and learn more, uh, you appreciate different elements. Of course, the whole country got onto uh, rosé through white Zinfandel. Remember Absolutely. The whole, yeah. Yeah, that was my that salary. Was definitely... I'm thankful for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank Gallo for all the beautiful Chablis of California. All right. Uh, we have a class coming up here. This is super interesting. We only have, we're taping this on Tuesday. We only have one seat left. But Annie, a chef here, and Bridget, a chef here, are, have a tasty menu lined up to show the French influence on Vietnamese cuisine. Uh, and that is, um, if you're watching on YouTube, I guess you can still get the one left ticket. But uh, we'll do another one of these in the future. It's super interesting uh, how colonialism plays a part in countries and cultures' food choices. Uh, so that's next here on the Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Much of Vietnamese food that we enjoy today has been heavily affected by French colonialism in Indochina, with many of the food habits from this gastronomically renowned nation having stayed with the Vietnamese culinary culture. With these influences come flavors, ingredients, and combinations that give an entirely new taste to traditional Vietnamese food. And that's what we're going to discuss here on the next segment of the Hot Stove Society radio show, Right here on Cairo, it's Chef Tom Douglas. And Terry Rotiro, the chef in the hat. And we've invited up to the mic uh, one of the chefs here at the Hot Stove Society, Annie Elmore. Hello. Hello. Hello, Annie. Jump right into that microphone, Annie. You heard that little intro, and I know you're doing a dinner with Bridget here on Friday. Uh, tell us in your words uh, how you feel about the colonial input into the culture of Vietnamese food. You're Cambodian too, right? Yeah. Uh, so Cambodian food, all that uh, all that. Era. I feel like the bread is one of the main thing that brought to the um, uh, Southeast Asia. Like the baguette bread? The baguette know? bread. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, the crunchiness on the outside and the soft inside, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. Uh, I would say pate, liver, that is definitely huge there. Still. Still is. Yeah. And then we also have some sort of beef stew type. That's similar to the French beef stew. Mm-hmm. Um, but, of course, you know, we don't use wine. We use uh, tomato instead uh-huh. um, for the acidic of it. Um, what do you use for the broth on that? Like I was just saying when I, we opened the show today that I had a delicious beef stew at Bontown Restaurant. 
uh, and it tasted like a thickened pho broth, yeah. with star anise and cinnamon. Yeah. And- so um, the thickness of it, there's no um, thickening in there. There's no roux. No, there's no, there's no roux or anything. It's just a lot of spices that have been ground up, and you just cook not a lot of stock like the you know um, the French way. So. Um, all of that spices and then the garlic, the ginger and the lemongrass. I'm sure you can taste some lemongrass in there as well. So that lemongrass on the bottom is what all the spices sitting on. Uh, and also another thing, we don't really sear our meat either. Um, so some of that, you know, meat juice stays in there. Uh, you don't really, you skim, but you don't sear. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's interesting. And we marinate the meat. Uh, we don't just cook the meat with just salt and pepper. You, so you mar- marinate it in lemon? No. So you marinate it in um, ginger, star anise, uh, cinnamon, clove, all the really, really warm spices. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, oil and then, uh, of course, more lemongrass and you let it overnight. Um, also, another thing that we use in there, uh, you see like that yellow fattiness, is the annatto seeds. Wow. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Cool. So what other influences has uh, French colonialism left behind that uh, your cultures have run with, essentially? You're, you haven't gone backwards. No, we have not. So, not that backwards is a bad, you yeah, know what I'm yeah, saying, you yeah. haven't just dropped it. Yeah. So, I mean, things that we advance more in the culinary uh, dishes that we still continue serving to the, today, it's the bun mi. Mm-hmm. Um, that is one of the things that, um, I mean, every year you hear like new things coming out, you know, new fillings and stuff like that. Uh, another one is the pho. It's actually derived also from the beef stew as well. It's beef broth and then of course that stew that you had that's also another version of that as well uh-huh. and then the crepe is another really popular one tell uh, me about the crepe so a lot of people were wondering how come we get that orange stuff in there because people were like oh well you said this is vegan but where's that yellow uh, color comes from it's from turmeric mm-hmm. instead of egg yolk uh, as opposed to the french crepe and then instead of butter and milk we use coconut milk and the batter is super thin because we were using rice flour instead of wheat flour. Yeah, so it's, um, so it's gluten-free, right? Yeah, yeah, it's gluten-free. And that's why I get that super crispy crunchiness uh, when you uh, cook it up uh, rather than that really nice uh, soft crepe that you get um, right. from... Well, you don't have any fat in there. It's basic. I mean, you do have some fat from the We do. Milk. I mean, the coconut milk is right. pretty fatty, but we can't roll it or fold it into quarters. It's cracked. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when I've had it, that crepe, they always serve it with big leaves of green leaf. Uh, yeah. And then you put the crepe in the green leaf and wrap it up that yeah. way. Right. So. Yeah. So you eat kind of like a lettuce wrap in a way. Mm-hmm. But, you know, um, the one thing that we kind of built onto the French cuisine is... Um, <laughs> I hate to say this to you, chef, but no. Western food is uh, that's a lot of softiness. You know, yeah. there's uh, not a lot of a crunch. Right. So for us, we love that crunch. Uh, we love textures in our food, whether it's soft or crunchy. Or if it's soft, we want to serve something with crunchy in there. So that's why we have a lot of fresh vegetable, like bean sprouts, is a great crunch into the dish. Lettuce as well, uh, cucumber, um, all that kind of stuff. And that's a pickle too. You do a lot of. Yeah, light, we like pickles. Yeah, we do cold pickles instead of hot right, pickles. Right. Yeah. Yeah, cold pickling carrots and 
and, and daikon, daikon and yeah vegetable. uh papaya is another great yeah, whole pickle ones yeah mm. chef in turn what would you say that uh, the french colonialism has brought to french cuisine is did it um well i think i think it opened up on spices it opened up on different um so the spices i think is the most important part like the you know, before... You see that in, in Paris and, you know, to this yeah, day... Yeah, I mean, you, you see, see it in the food in general. Yeah. You know, star anise, like she was using star anise. That was not a, 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 a spice that we had in French cooking until the colonization, until the, they start going around the world mm-hmm. and getting that. So, you know, that's a perfect example of things that move around from different places. And then star anise became very popular in French cooking with chef around the 80s, 90s. Really, really popular. What about cinnamon? Because, you know, you know cinnamon from yeah. Vietnam, Vietnam is a true cinnamon that you get. Same thing, cinnamon. But yeah. cinnamon, we had it a little bit before. I think from China, I think originally. Or India, yeah. Yeah, yeah and India, yeah. China and India. And it came, uh, but even earlier than that. But I think then, then uh, you know, things like star anise and also uh, Thai basil and mm-hmm. things like this. These were never existing before. So those are all different things that were added to the... Just like, just like here, it's the same thing. You know, the culture moves in. Mm-hmm. Because don't forget, the French went to Vietnam, but the Vietnamese came to France too. Oh, yeah. So because of that, there's a huge amount of population that requires, you know, when you move to a different country, you're always going, oh, what can I have? You From know, the I, old country. I, I, yeah. I miss yeah. this, I miss that. You know, that. it's so funny you said that because when I went to Paris, and I have a friend who goes there all the time too, uh, and the, there's a huge uh, Vietnamese uh, culture and population community in Paris. They said it's the best Vietnamese food outside of Vietnam. <laughs> so if you, there's another place you want to go try Vietnamese food without going to Vietnam, that would be a place to go. That's the both I, worlds I, I, right yeah. there. You know, yeah. I believe that because I think it's the same thing with when there's a huge concentration of a culture moving somewhere, mm-hmm. I would be willing to bet, uh, talking about moving of culture, when I was in Chicago, there was a huge amount of uh, Polish people. Mm-hmm. I would be willing to bet that they, it would be the same thing for them. Totally. You Great Polish restaurants. Yeah. yeah. The only one, they just did an article about it, Sebi, right here by University Bridge. Oh, yeah. yeah I love exactly. that place. Okay, chef. Our listeners love to find new restaurants. Where are you going for Vietnamese food these days? I know you cook it the best. <laughs> you know, amazingly, there's this uh, small place called New Leaf in West Seattle. Um, the husband and wife own, um, they are um, Chinese Vietnamese, but um, they starting to add in a lot of Vietnamese um, dishes in there. And it's actually really good. Really good. New Leaf in West Seattle. Yep. All right. Thanks, Annie. Thank you so Thank much, you. Annie. Up next, uh, Pamela is going to take us through uh, an afternoon tea that is fun and fancy in honor of Mother's Day coming up. Maybe you two want to, maybe you want to do your own afternoon tea. Right here on the Cairo Radio Hot Stove Society Show, 97.3 FM. Let's make some tea for mom on mom's day right here on the Hot Stove Show. We're here in uh, downtown Seattle at the beautiful Hotel Andra second floor come back and see us sometimes take a class here at the hot stove just go on hotstovesociety.com and you can find all of our class schedules and everybody work. everybody that i know who comes here for the first time goes oh my god this is the coolest place in the world it's really cool i like it it's here. a very very cool place yeah, it is sometimes people can't find it you just if you see lola on the corner just go into that hotel right there leandra and then go upstairs to the second floor 
Just walk or, right or, up the or use your favorite friend when you're lost. Its name is Google. <laughs> I don't know that it will tell you once you get inside the building how to get here because we're kind of back in the corner. Well, there is a doorman at yeah, the Hotel Android. We'll yeah. tell you where it is. Exactly. <laughs> okay, Pamela, uh, we are going to have some tea with mom on Mom's Day. And this is uh, something that I honestly have never done. I've never made high tea before. I've had it throughout the hotels of London. I've had it once in a while, way back when, when the Georgian Room had it here in downtown Seattle. Uh, Queen Mary's Tea Room over yes. in uh, Ravenna area. Uh, but I've, I'm not really fully sensed on it, other than when I did have it at the Browns Hotel in London. It was so expensive. <laughs> it was like when you took in, in, in account the exchange, it was about $125 a person for high tea with a nice little half bottle of champagne. It's all about the water, oh, I think it was the champagne <laughs> that uh, pumped up your bill. No, it's, yeah. all, it's all about the water. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, it was delicious and lots and lots of little treats. So what are you suggesting for Mother's Day? Well, since people, there's only four tickets left for your class on Mother's Day. Oh, really? Oh, boy. And Mom uh, and Tom. Mom and Tom with a very ambitious, uh, rich menu. I'm just going to read it out because it's incredible, and I think people are going to want it. Uh, scones, shrimp and grits, sweet potatoes with maple tahini and duck fat, uh, Prosser Farm eggs from Jackie, rose petal harissa and mushrooms, and then there's more, asparagus with peas and Benton County ham. Wow. Oh, boy. So... My approach is a little bit different. <laughs> really? This what? is definitely what? not high tea. This is <laughs> more like, high. okay, we're having a buffet, we're going to eat. Well, it wasn't meant as, it was meant as a brunch. It wasn't yeah, supposed yeah, to be yeah. high brunch. tea. Yeah, this is breakfast and lunch together. Yes. That's, it, hence it, the word brunch. It will carry people through the day. Yes, it will. Easily. So before you start cooking, let's decorate a few flowers around the house. Exactly. Where happened to the flowers? Uh, maybe our photographer is rearranging. Oh. Our, our scenery. But you didn't even notice. But <laughs> the, that means Amy owes me $5. <laughs> the research into this subject uh, taught me a lot because I wanted to call the segment high tea. Mm-hmm. But as I came to find out, high tea is the service later in the day for the working class in Britain when they come home uh, from their day of Work. labor and sit in high chairs and have a hearty tea with meats. The tea that I'm thinking about is practiced as an afternoon tea and it was developed by the upper class as a snack around four to hold them over between the long break between lunch and the 8 p.m. dinner. And that's where the tradition of the tiny sandwiches and the little quiche and the little wafers came from. But I want to build uh, an experience more in that realm Mm. where you pay tremendous attention to setting up the room, breaking out the china, ironing your napkins, and making place cards, individual place cards, and really showing mom uh, the effort that you want to put into celebrating her. Yeah, because mom's not going to eat a whole buffet anyway, so it's so no. good. It's, a, it's about, you know, get creative and spend the time and the, and the craft. It's, yeah, it. it's, yeah. M- it's more creating the environment mm-hmm. uh, and then having very light food um, 
in in the early afternoon when the sun is out. So it's it's a different experience to right. eat that kind of meal in uh, the bright of the day. My first couple of times having it, I was like, why the hell do they? Cut all the crust off the bread. I love the crust, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I kind of missed the point of the daintiness of it all and the, you know, with the sliced cucumbers and the cream cheese. Or, you missed that point? I know, I know, I know. So surprised. Yeah, but anyway. <laughs> so I got that later, you know, maybe my 10th time of having a high tea is that it's, it's on the... Have you done it that often? Yeah. <laughs> Well, well, in London, it's just what you do in the afternoon, I right? Know. Yeah, it's so perfect. it's like a great way to, after museum hopping all day, just kind of like settle in and... And really kind of start the evening process, which is champagne. <laughs> what about the gin, tea? A lot of gin martinis. Forget the, tea. Forget the tea. I go straight to the bar. <laughs> what about the tea? Yeah, exactly. And a, a tea. What about the tea? So what is your favorite tea to have during... Because, you know, tea brings a lot of flavor. So much. I love Earl Grey. That's my... Elegant. Yeah, that's my kind of fragrant tea that I like. I love Earl Grey, but in the afternoon, and especially with this kind of menu, I'm going to go with mint because of the uplift, the right. refresh, and there were a lot of versions of mint cocktails, mint tea cocktails, mm-hmm. too, so you could have your experience. What would your tea be, Terry? I would go herbal as well. I would go uh, flavor from uh, herbs and dry fruit, kind of, kind of idea for tea, more like infusion versus tea. A tea problem sane. With the problem with black tea is if I take it uh, five o'clock for some reason, coffee doesn't do anything, but tea keeps me up. Really? Yeah, black tea. And uh, so I try to do, you know, if I do a tea in the afternoon, that's going to be what it will be. It would be more like a. I love Smith in Portland, great tea company. They do such beautiful work. Um, and so, do you have a favorite? Pastry, because uh, you know one of the things in when you the, the, when they come to your table, they typically come with a little uh, tiered tray, yeah, yeah, right? Exactly. Two or three layers yeah, with pastry on the top, and then some sandwiches, uh, and then uh, like scones and clotted cream and stuff on the bottom. Uh, I'm a big fan of those cookies that have the jam in the middle. Um, Linzer, Linzer, uh-huh. Linzer cookie. I love that. You know, it's a good tea cookie. Um, you know, sip of tea and a bit of. A little nutty. Raspberry jam-filled mm-hmm. cookie. You know, it's super delicious, crunchy, and that's my kind of cookie. Well, we are uh, lucky that we can get Effie's here, and they built that cookie slash cracker to go with afternoon tea. That uh, Their best seller, the oat cake, yeah. uh, is, is just... The pinnacle accompaniment to tea, I think. I don't know Just if you know it or not, Pamela. Sweet. I know that's one of your favorite crackers, but Joan McIsaac, who started that company, was the first chef yeah. after me in our company. She was the Dahlia Lounge chef oh, wow. in 1991 or so when I when I was going off to open our second restaurant, sure, sure. Uh, maybe 92. And yeah, uh, John Sundstrom was her sous chef. Yeah. yeah Holly Smith. Was she already uh, drinking tea and eating biscuits? She was a Boston girl, so it was more oh, in her it comes culture. From her East Coast, yeah, her culture. East Coast, yeah. East Coast culture thing. Very I nice, think. yeah. Uh, but anyway, so that's just a little fact. Uh, any other favorites from? Uh, I love a good cream puff or something like that, a profiterole yeah. at yeah, yeah, tea, yeah, yeah, but yeah. it doesn't seem very English. Well, jam know. seems like what you said—a a jam cookie, a dry or, cracker. With, I, I mean, a dry cookie. I think with jam would be more. Uh, probably English mm-hmm. or um, um, uh, like a Genoise idea. Oh. Um, like a little jelly roll kind of. A gel- yeah, exactly. Like a little jelly roll. That would also be a little bit more British. 
Um, I'm not sure. Now, here's a question for you. Almost always when I've had tea service, the scones are like rocks. crumble rocks. <laughs> no. And I don't feel like when I'm sitting there with my pinky out drinking my Earl Grey with bergamot oil uh, that I'm supposed to be dunking my biscuit into my tea. <laughs> Use your spoon. Use your spoon. But that would be that's what I want to do when I eat those really dry cream. biscuits. What's well, the story on that? The most... Uh, often quoted tip it was never put your pinky out <laughs> just hold gustily onto uh-huh. your teacup okay uh, but that's what the clotted well, cream is for to break up those dry scones yeah and i do kind of like those those savory little sandwiches you know I, I like that i think it's very cool you can do like a salmon rillette you know in a little triangle bread yes yeah, so that was often on most menus crab it was crab you know, remoulade. Yeah, and, and by the way, if, if it's too much bread, just use one slice of bread. Don't use two. You don't have to do it covered sandwich. You can do open face uh, triangles. That would know, be even prettier. Or rounds. You can do rounds and triangles. You can use your pastry cutters and do rounds and do, and do triangles. So you have a little different shapes. Mm-hmm. And then a little fresh herb on top or a little julienne tulips or whatever you have right now in the, in the garden. That, that makes it very pretty. <laughs> the tulips tricked people on Friday night because uh, for his egg service, uh-huh. uh, he shaved up julienne tulips for the plate, and they were like, are we allowed to eat these? And yes. Like, yes. I yes. didn't know you could eat tulips. Me either. Tulips leaves. Not the bulb, the leaves. All right. We're going to wrap up our show today. For, uh, stay with us. It's the Food for Thought Tasty Trivia Show brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs on Cairo Radio 97.3 FM. Welcome back. It's time for Food for Thought Tasty Trivia brought to you by Rub with Love Spice Rubs. Rub with Love uh, Spice Rubs are made by us right here in Ballard. Uh, they're tangy. They're, they're, we have tangy sauces, perfect mustard, the shallot mustard. Keep them in your cupboard to assist you in building out flavor profiles for your veggies, proteins, and grains. Rub with Love is available at grocery stores like Whole Foods in Seattle and Portland, Bristol Farms in L.A., Nugget Markets in the Sacramento area. It's all over the place. Uh, online, if you can't find it anywhere else, go either go down to the market and go to the Rub Shack down at the Seatown or go online, TomDouglas.com. Let's see, Mr. Chef. Uh, Pamela, do you want to tell our listeners how to play the game and uh, why it is that you enlisted four brilliant yeah. Uh, audience members to take us on because <laughs> mm-hmm. were you concerned that just one of them couldn't do it or what's oh, no, going on? No, no, I love their energy and oh, having okay. them in the room. So when you've got vibrant women, you've got to celebrate it. All right, so okay. They're the team that's going to play against each of you. Each group will get five questions and they'll be a loser. Can we go straight? Can we go hey, straight? Terry, here's the thing. Remember, I give out the gift and I know Pamela, if they win, they're each going to get the same gift. That's right. Oh, so my. it's costing me four times. All right. So, so we got to put our brain together. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. The fight is on. All right. On. Let's do that. We'll take the two of us against the four of them. Okay. What? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh, there we go. This, this might thwart my plan. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys are going first. Yes. Go ahead. Tamarind is the fruit pod of a tall shade tree whose flavor is often described as a combination of lemon, apricots, and dates. 
What popular condiment sauce gets its signature flavor from tamarind? <laughs> <laughs> What's, what popular condiment sauce? So I'm going to go something like A1 steak sauce or, you know, maybe Worcestershire, Worcestershire? but I'm guessing A1. It's Worcestershire. 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 You didn't even yes. say that one. Oh, I said it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I think like only smokes. <laughs> okay. Number two. Is turbo a meat, a sauce, or a fish? It's what's on my Porsche. <laughs> <laughs> if it's you a, had it's a, a Porsche. It's a Porsche turbo. <laughs> no, it's a fish. Yes. It's a French fish that is the equivalent of the halibut. Nice. You guys are off to a strong start. Parsley has over 30 varieties. Yes. <laughs> but please name two of the most popular varieties Curly and Italian flats. Yes <laughs> Here we get two, three Three out of five What is the term for the food that confer- conforms to strict Jewish biblical laws Pertaining not only to the type of food that can be eaten But also to the kinds of foods that can be combined at any one meal Kosher Wow Winner. If, and one did you really think he wouldn't get that one? <laughs> <laughs> what is gelatin made from? Uh, gelatin is made from horse. Well, it can be. Well, I mean, that's one, Hooves, yeah. one of the most popular meat that's used is horse. Horse mm-hmm. meat. Um, it's made from bones, and gelatin comes from... The collagen that's in the bone. That's what we were looking for. Five Yay. out of five. Five yeah. Out of five. Nice job, Chef. Nice Girls. job. <laughs> Here we go. All right, team. Number one, what is tamari made from? We're going to go with soybeans. Yes. yes. Is clafouti a type of cheese or a French dessert? Dessert? Oh, yeah. Wow, two out of two. Like, uh, this is good. Yeah, I know. What is a mortar and pestle used for? Grinding spices. Yes. Oh, my God. <laughs> Please name the sweet yeast bread of Italian origin baked in a tall, cylindrical, straight-sided mold traditionally served at Christmas. Ooh, we might have them. There's dissent among the team. Go to dealer Entes. They always have yes. Hey, 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 hey. This fool is already four. Yes. Panatone. Oh. I thought we had him there, Chef. <laughs> Me too. Yes. Okay, yes. I thought we had him. Okay. This is good. <laughs> what is the name of the popular non-alcoholic drink made with ginger ale and a maraschino cherry named after a 1930s child star? Oh, my God. Shirley Temple. <laughs> oh, my God. Who doesn't Thank know that? Five out of five. <laughs> it's Sprite, and yeah, I'm not, I don't think you have bad information there. So we'll see. There's, there's a dispute on the team over there, dissension. They got the answer right that you wanted, except that's not the right answer to the question. Okay, we got it. Okay. All right, uh, Chef, we have to win this or we five lose? Five out of five. Yeah, yeah I know. Oh, this is intense. Croque and bouche. Is French for crisp in the mouth. What kind of dish is it? I thought that's where somebody died in the hedgerow. <laughs> Croak in the bush. Uh, Good. It's a cream puff dessert. 
I think we'll give you that. Yes. Profiteroles uh, coated with caramel yeah. mm-hmm. in a pyramid. Um, what are the growing conditions necessary for watercress? Very oh. wet. We pick it out of the sewer line. <laughs> <laughs> cool we, running water. Yeah. <laughs> we take it out of the box. Does that qualify? Yeah, yeah it's very wet. Right, are you kidding right. me? It's called water for a reason. The, the term surimi means formed fish. What is most of the surimi in North America made from? Why? Pollock. Alaskan Pollock. <laughs> wow. Uh-oh, guys. Yeah. This is... Uh, two more, two more. Closing in. What do the British call low-quality wine? Champagne. <laughs> no, no, no. Low-quality wine. Swill. Mm. I would say... Mm. What do they call low-quality wine? I would say... Like Muscadet and wine like that from France, maybe? Uh-oh, no? this could be trouble. Vinegar. Plonk. Oh. oh, man. They went down. They, what's the last Blanc. one? What is the term for slowly pouring a liquid mixture in a very fine stream over food? Over food? for Not emulsifying, but you're saying over food? Yes. Drizzle. Drizzle, no. yay! Thank you. Thank you yes. for that. <laughs> but we still lost, Chef. Only got Whoa. 9 out of 10. Boo-hoo. Oh, that is not right. Oh. You know that, what yay. that means? Congratulations to the uh, audience team members. If you want to be part of the show, you can buy tickets to join us at the studio on hotstovesociety.com or watch the taping on YouTube at Tom Douglas and Company. Go for the Hot Stove Society radio show. You're listening to us on Cairo. The show is produced by Pamela Hinckley, Sean McFadden, and our editor is Sean Don't Call Me Del Torre. Remember, if you miss any episode of our Hot Stove Society show on Cairo, you can listen via podcast. Just subscribe with your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. Yay!